Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And this is our second episode. Oh my God, I can't believe it. It's been such a cool thing to watch the reaction and hear some feedback from people. And yeah, just awesome. We've gotten so much support from our episode on Egypt Station and Thrillington. We got seven five-star reviews. I know, it's too amazing. Oh, I almost cried like the two reviews that are there. It's like so nice. So yeah, if you like this podcast and if you're a Beatles fan, you probably will. Feel free to leave us a review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You know, we'll be posting photos, videos, and more from this episode, last episode, future episodes, and a whole bunch of other stuff too. Who knew Percy Thrillington would be so popular? I don't know, but people have been posting really cool Percy Thrillington photos and artifacts on Facebook which I thought was really cool. One of my friends was like, I never listened to that album. I'm a big Paul fan, but I went and listened to it after I heard the podcast and she's now a fan. So you're welcome, Percy Thrills Thrillington. Thrills, Mr. Thrills. For your new fans, courtesy of us. This Week in Beatles History, and we're kind of encompassing all of the end of July just because it will probably be probably be our last podcast for July. So the first thing that happened, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that happened, obviously, but the first thing we want to talk about is July 29th, 1965, Help premiered, uh, which is funny because this episode is going to be centered on Yellow Submarine, obviously another Beatles film, but July was a good month for Beatles film premieres, I suppose. I think A Hard Day's Night also premiered in July. So this was a huge success and everybody was so excited because A Hard Day's Night was not only a fan favorite, but it's a cinematic wonder. It's still on a lot of people's hundred top movies of all time. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of anticipation and it was going to be in color. As George said, the color was going to be green. There were a few more colors than that. (laughs) Just a couple, just a couple more colors than green. George was close. Yes. Green was a very prominent theme in the movie though because they were stoned out of their minds the entire time (laughs) (laughs) yes even it's even more so than red which was you know the color of the paint the color of the ring the color of so many scenes man that that movie's so racist okay (laughs) (laughs) i know i know that i have i haven't seen help in a minute it's been a bit that was my first beatles film that i ever saw and that was my introduction to them like just even seeing them watching them interact in real time and it was just I can't even imagine at that time I thought it was really cool but now I'm like oh poor little Allison that was the first time you you know I should have started with a hard day's night it's so funny how the movies you see as a kid really shape your trajectory of your Beatles fandom I think hard day's night was my first one I never saw yellow submarine and I thought help was so weird as a kid I didn't really start appreciating it until much later Help is definitely weird. I think I just sort of accepted it because it was the Beatles. I didn't question it. I was just like, yep, this is great because it's the Beatles. But now I'm like, Jesus Christ, this film is crazy. Mm -hmm. It's fun, though. (laughs) It is fun. So it had its premiere at the London Pavilion in Piccadilly Circus, London. And there were 10,000 fans gathered outside to see them. And one of those fans was... Princess Margaret, the royal Princess Margaret and her husband, Lord Snowden, who delayed their summer vacation just to see this event. Because Princess Margaret, as we know from The Crown, is a badass. Mm -hmm. You know, this was kind of a benchmark on the Beatles career, especially for 1965, because six months later, they would receive their MBEs. So they really started interacting with royalty. And as we've seen from Sir Paul and Sir Richard, some of them (laughs) liked it a bit more than others. I think John was maybe the only one definitely returned to MBE, and they did not take that shit seriously. No, they didn't. I think Paul kind of likes it now. Yeah, Paul loves it. Paul would, though. Don't you think? Yeah, Paul he's, would love he's always been into that kind of stuff. Did you ever see one of the earliest writings they ever found of Paul's? He was 10 years old, and he won a writing competition about the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in his primary school. Oh, my gosh. That's kind of adorable. It's so and cute. because I'm like... I'm such a royal nerd that I'm really excited about that. You need to read it. It's adorable. I need to. I really do. I'll have to find it. Also, the same day, one year later. So it's funny if you think about it. 65, world premiere of Help. 66, shit goes down. Because that was the day or the month, I guess, the issue of Date Book that republished John Lennon's quote-unquote bigger than Jesus comments. Those had come out 
a long time ago, long time before that in England, kind of didn't go anywhere. They sort of didn't think anything of, of it. The interview was republished, sort of reformatted in an American teen magazine called Datebook. And people were very unhappy, to put it mildly. To say the least. So that sparked a whole summer of Beatle record burnings. And we have in early August, you know, Brian Epstein calling press conferences and John issuing an apology for basically insinuating, which, you know, it's debatable what, what he was exactly insinuating. I think he had a point, but we can talk about that mm-hmm. <laughs> another time. <laughs> that sort of outraged uh, a lot of the Bible Belt in America, a lot of the more conservative families, especially in the South. Again, kids were burning their Beatles records, bringing their Beatles shirts and memorabilia, which Jesus, I wish I had that. Some people sort of delineate that was the beginning of John Lennon's fall from grace. That was the summer that they stopped touring because touring got dangerous and scary. I believe that was also the tour where they went to the Philippines in 66. And that was really, really bad for them. John was forced to apologize publicly on television. If you ever look at that video, he looks horrified. He looks miserable. He looks like he's going to cry. Yeah. And there's a video, I think I will post it if I find it, of Brian addressing the press solo after this whole thing happened. And he is just, he looks exhausted. He looks exasperated. I'm sure I can't even imagine what was going through his head. I'm sure it was a combination of, oh my God, John. And also you guys are blowing this way out of proportion. Right. And also Brian was Jewish. So this Christian fervor, which is not only, it's very unique to the United States, I think, as far as, you know, when compared to Britain, but also he's not even part of the Christian culture in Britain. So he's seeing this. He's probably so surprised. Well, I think, and I'm, I'm not a member of either religion, but I think for most part, the Anglicans and, and the Christian British people are more reserved. And obviously you cannot even compare that to like American Southern Baptists, nope. like the revivals and that whole spirit. It's like, yeah, they're going to latch onto this and they're going to take it to the limit. John sort of explained it away as he was talking to a friend, Maureen Cleave, and he just didn't even think about the comment. And neither did anybody in Britain. They sort of just were like, well, yep. Not a great summer for them. Nah, not a good summer at all. But a summer that actually was a little bit better, or at least prettier, was 1968. And on July 28th, 1968, photographer Tom Murray photographed them out in London for what we call the Mad Day Out session. They're in the forest. They're with flowers. They're colorful. They are free. They seem very unreserved from their usual photographs and it's just a photo shoot that was never repeated nothing like this was ever done i think what's really cool is like the breadth of the photos because there's so many shots that are just so creative and yeah the color in these pictures i grew up with a poster from the mad day out sessions in my bedroom and i just loved it because it was so colorful like you know the grass is really green Somebody, I think it was Paul, maybe had a pink suit on. Like, it was just, I loved, like, the contrast. And you, I mean, that was sort of, sort of of the era, you know. And we'll talk about that further with Yellow Submarine. And obviously coming off a Magical Mystery Tour. But, like, just the Beatles in full color. It was just amazing. There's a wonderful picture. It's my favorite one. Uh, Paul just shooting water out of his mouth. Like, oh, I love fountain. that picture. It's just so cute yeah. and playful. It was one of Tom Murray's favorites when he was recording or when he was shooting him. Because he got the water all over the camera. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you remember that for sure. (laughs) Because he said what he did was he just tried to hide, you know, not be part of their day and Mm -hmm. be invisible and let them do what they wanted. And that's how they got them in those free spirited moments. That's so genius. And you actually interviewed Tom, right? I did. I think it was about two years ago, his book, Mad Day Out, which is a gorgeous coffee table compilation of the Mad Day Out photo session. Um, it was a limited edition version was appearing. Um, he was coming to the fest for Beatles fans to, to autograph and launch this new book that he had out. So we got an interview with him for Rebeat and I interviewed him and then reviewed the book. And he was such a sweet guy. And he was so humble and and just talking about how he was in the background and he had this one roll of color film and nothing else. And that's all. He didn't even know what band it was that he was going to be shooting that day. Can you imagine? And he just, yeah, he comes and he comes in a nice car and he's very excited and he sees the Beatles. So... (laughs) (laughs) 
I can't imagine anything more surreal. No, it seems crazy. And that that's how the name came out because he was talking to his mother about what happened. And you know, he just said it was a mad day out. That pretty much encompasses everything. It was just, yeah, beyond belief, I'm sure. Yeah, he had no flash. He had one camera. He had one lens. And that was all it took. Yeah. You know, thank God. Thank God that Tom was there. There's one part of the photo shoot that's a little unsettling, I think. There's a few shots where they, John is lying like he's dead, and the other three are watching oh, over yeah. him. They're, they're creepy as fuck. They're just freaked me out. I remember when those were passed around the internet, like the late 90s, early 2000s, and people were like, oh, like, you know, kids were losing their shit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, very, very, yeah, disturbing in light of recent-ish, 30-some years events. In Beatles history, that's recent. In Beatles history, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Definitely takes on a different form. So let's uh, move on to modern history, a.k.a. the news of the week. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about is there was a lot of hubbub on the Internet this past week because Drake actually broke the Beatles historic record. So the Beatles had the record from the most singles in the top 10 simultaneously with five. And Drake just charted 10 in the top 10. So he's got all 10. He actually also has 27 of the top 100, which, you know, is over a quarter of the entire Billboard Hot 100, which is unheard of. That is amazing. It's amazing. I mean, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. You have to take things into context. And people have been losing their shit. And I kind of think rightly so. Some people have really valid arguments for saying Drake shouldn't get this recognition. The Beatles are iconic. The Beatles still deserve that honor for a couple of reasons. So... A lot of people say you can't compare the two because, and some of these are really far-fetched. I'm just going to warn you. I read an article, and it's actually written by a woman. I think it maybe was CNN. But she claimed that you couldn't compare the two because Drake's listeners are mostly female. Uh, I'm not super sure how that really factors into the play count. Mm. Uh, because, And also I would argue that so were the Beatles. And then also she chalked up some of the Beatles' success with their five singles in the top 10 to racism in the sixties in America. What? I don't know if I buy into any of that bullshit. What I will say is that I think this all needs to be taken in context. And I don't know if you can rightly compare the Beatles five songs to Drake's 10. And here's why it would be different if the Beatles put out an album, say they put out rubber soul, for example, and all the tracks on rubber soul were released as singles I guarantee all of those tracks would have been in the top 10. No doubt in my mind. And they would have had B-sides. So he, they probably could have reached, you know, close to like a quarter of the Hot 100. Now, today, obviously, it's like we don't have the same album culture as we did then. So the Beatles would put out a few singles, a few B-sides, get their five songs in the top 10, make history, ta-da. Drake obviously drops an album. He drops Scorpion. All those songs are going to get streamed because he's Drake. And all of them are going to be in the top 10 because they get the streams, they get the downloads, they get the play counts. But it's not the same because the Beatles didn't release as many quote-unquote singles. And in this day and age, every track from an album is sort of counted as a single. So it's like you can't compare the two rightly. So did Drake kind of break that record? Technically, he did. But does it really count in the context? I don't know. I mean, you can sort of break it down by numbers and sales and that kind of thing. But that's still, it's like, it's apples and oranges a little bit, just because of historical context. We don't sell records the same way. We don't consume music the same way. And I don't think that the radio stations work in even close to the same way as they did 50 years ago. There's, there's no comparison. I think also you have to consider, you know, when the Beatles were releasing singles in their era, I'm not talking about reissues, I'm not talking about any of that, but like at the moment when these singles were brand new, you know, you had to go to the record store to buy it. You had to take it home. You, you know, you had to go through this whole process. Whereas, you know, today it's like I open up Spotify. I have every piece of music I could ever want at my fingertips. I can listen to it over and over for virtually for free, even though I pay for Spotify and everybody should pay for Spotify because it's worth it. Mm -hmm. um, 
not sponsored by Spotify, but Spotify, if you want to sponsor us, we're here. We're here. We're here for that. Um, but yeah, so it's like, it's not even the same culture. It's, it's completely different. So I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about this. <laughs> I have a lot of feels. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so that was something that happened. Uh, but like, if you have an opinion on this, I, I think we both love to hear it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this on social media. Um, we'll pose the question on Facebook. Let's have a discussion because I'm really interested to hear what everybody thinks and, Let's try to keep it, you know, out of like shitting on today's music and Drake sucks and stuff. It's not about that. It's not about what you think about Drake. It's about what happened and just the context. And if you think those two things are comparable. That'll be a really fun discussion. Yeah, I think it'll be very spirited, as they say. Mm -hmm. So the next news item on our agenda is that we found out that when Donald Trump arrived in the UK for his visit last week, He arrived to the tune of We Can Work It Out when he visited the U.S. ambassador's residence. Trump himself didn't choose that. I guess the ambassador chose it. But I thought it was an interesting topic because would the Beatles want that? And does that matter when you choose a song in a political context? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say because... You know, at least for John, I think Paul in a lesser degree, George, certainly, you know, they've kind of made political and social statements with their music. But like, it's Donald Trump, you know, I don't. The rumor is that Paul McCartney's album has an anti-Trump song on it. Oh, I heard that too. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, same. It was a choice by the U.S. ambassador. So I'm sure that he was trying to make some kind of a joke about relations between the two countries. But yeah still i mean considering like london's whole attitude towards trump's visit not to make this a political podcast but it does seem like very tongue-in-cheek when you consider like the baby balloon and like (laughs) they know how to protest they really do yeah they do they're great england we love you we love you so much so something else that happened this week harper's bazaar published an interview with patty boyd but what's unique about it is taylor swift was doing the interview which is cool Um, It's sort of like the style of the recently departed interview magazine, which was one of my favorites, R.I.P. I don't know. I have mixed feelings on the interview, but they sort of talk through Patty's role in the lives of the men she influenced. And Taylor Swift has obviously been accused of like, you know, writing songs about her exes and all that kind of thing. But I don't know, Erica, you tell me what you think, but I... I don't want to believe this, but for me, some of the tone in the interview from Taylor's side sort of came off as a little, like, dismissive or, like, derogatory, where it's sort of like, Patty, you were just amused. Tell me about that. And it was, I don't know. I don't think she meant it that way, but sort of, I don't know, it sort of came off that way. I thought that from an editorial perspective, this was such a perfect match. I mean, if you look at them, they, they look so much alike. Oh, yeah. The photos, mm, beautiful. The interviews interspersed with the fashion shoot of Taylor Swift dressing in Patty Boyd-like attire from the 60s. And she looks so good. Yeah. And the two of them together, they look like they could probably be mother and daughter. It's pretty amazing. Oh, my God, yeah. I don't know. I have a lot of mixed feelings about this, too. And I'm trying to figure out exactly how to, to say it. I felt like Taylor did come off as a little bit condescending in the beginning. Also, just like, you know, I'm such an artist and you're such a muse. Tell mm-hmm. me about your side. Like, That's exactly yeah, the vibe I got. I think she kind of got past that after a while because she did get interested in Patty and in Patty's story. And for Patty, I think being a muse was not just standing around and looking pretty. She was talking about people hating her and, you know, chasing her out of a venue and, you know, there were scary experiences. So it kind of moved past that sort of superficial initial premise. Right. I didn't know everything that I heard in this interview. I didn't know about Patty's experience um, with fans. I think they found a lot of common ground. It's interesting, you know, because Taylor can obviously relate to that, especially the backlash and not this isn't a Taylor Swift podcast by any means, but you know, the backlash from her reinventing her image so much, so many times. And she, I think tries to make honest music. I'm not a Taylor Swift aficionado, but you know, from what I've read just in, you know, blogs and things, but Patty, you know, Patty did serve this role. And, you know, she wasn't just her role as a muse, but you know, she's always been very, 
upfront up and open about it too, which is really refreshing. And I think that sort of honesty is really, uh, you know, it's just, it's really rare and it's, it's lovely. She's come so much to terms with what happened. She seems above it all. She seems very at peace. You know, it's nice to see that all of that trauma, you know, you can get past it. Yeah. One thing that bugged me the whole time I was reading this, though, if you think about it, Taylor Swift is always maligned in the media for dating somebody, breaking up with him, and then writing an album about him and being, mm-hmm. you know, they say it's it's catty, it's whatever. But George Harrison and Eric Clapton, even though those were, you know, they were admiring her in the songs, they did exactly the same thing. They were writing about a woman they were with. Yeah. And half of the songs that are popular in the world were written because of a breakup. Yeah, I was just going to make that point. It's like, yeah, exactly. It's a double standard. When they're written by men, we don't think anything about it. When they're written by women and we have so few female songwriters, there's so much criticism for her for doing that. So I know. just to comment on the state of our of the music industry and the state of our society. No, it's true. It's like women are like bitter, like crusty bitches that they write like a breakup song. But like, you know, men, obviously, it's like, even look at the Beatles catalog. It's like how many of those are dealing with relationship issues and everybody goes through them and everybody can relate to them. So it's like very messed up, you know, the way that that double standard works for sure. So next, Paul McCartney has announced more dates on the Freshen Up tour. Mm. Hashtag Freshen Up. Let's see, where is he going? Oh, he's going to Krakow? Yeah, he just Vienna. scheduled that, I think, yesterday, Krakow. Uh, of course, Liverpool, Glasgow, and then the O2 Arena in London, December 16th. Guaranteed he's going to sing Wonderful Christmas Time. Yes. No, I hate that. And no, I will defend I that know. song to the death. Uh, bad news is that there were some horrible difficulties for fans to get tickets. Yeah. Twitter, like, blew up, basically. They seem to have done something where you can enter yourself in a lottery, and if you get picked for the lottery, you got a chance to compete for tickets on the website. If you won the lottery the night before, they sent you a code so that you you could actually buy them on the ticket site. But when fans who got the code, which were still just a small percentage of the people who tried, got in... All of the tickets were sold out in under two minutes and started appearing on, you know, third party sellers for extremely, for exorbitant prices. People are angry. People are ranting about it, rightfully so. I hope something about this changes. I mean, I feel like Paul McCartney should care enough about his fans to get involved when the scalping is at this uh this level yeah totally i mean it's it's terrible and if anybody listening right now is a scalper boo you should be yeah, ashamed screw of yourself you. <laughs> if any of you had any experiences with this ticket buying let us know what happened yeah we want to know i mean i i know a friend of mine got tickets but she did pre-sale and it seemed pretty seamless but for general sale it's got to be better than this this is this is terrible there's no reason for this these are stadium shows they're huge it's inexcusable really but yeah um hopefully paul i heard a rumor that he is rolling out new dates one by one so we'll see where he goes obviously there's there's room in there for a u.s tour yes please Come to L.A., come to Brooklyn. How could he not, please? Those are the only two cities that matter because that's where we are. I still wish I got that I saw Paul McCartney in Brooklyn shirt. Give me a second chance to buy it again. That was so good, especially after he wore it in those pictures with... Oh, my God, with Emma Stone at Alan Cummings' nightclub. Yes. Uh, I love that he was in the West Village. I can't. It's just... uh, That was so perfect. Please do it again. Please, Paul. Please, Paul. Please. Please, please. <laughs> uh, I'll stop making fun of the name Freshen Up if you do it. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, we have a long time to roast that name. It's fucking terrible. Anyway. Also, still looking for that gum. If anybody out there sees it <laughs> in their local convenience store, buy it. Take a picture. Add us, please. You're kidding. Nobody found it after our first episode? Come on, guys. Come on. Find that gum from the 80s. Please. It's got to be here in Brooklyn. It's got to be somewhere. It's got to be. It's like in a back room of a bodega <laughs> somewhere in like Sunset Heights. <laughs> All right, I'm gone, I'm gone. Anyway, <laughs> um, so some cool news. This sort of piggybacks off of our main theme today, but All You Need Is Love, the song, obviously, is being turned into an illustrated children's book, which is exciting. To me, it just makes sense. So apparently Simon Schuster are coming out with this book entitled, of course, All You Need Is Love. Mark Rosenthal, who, um, I mean, you know, I don't really want to talk about the book that he illustrated but uh a child's first book of trump i don't even know i don't even know what that is uh i'm gonna just leave it there Uh, but he's gonna be illustrating this um there's a really cute uh 
picture of the cover and this article from Entertainment Weekly. Um, we'll make sure to link that so you can check it out. And it's set to be released next January. Um, so probably some pre-orders are going to go up soon. Uh, yeah, but if you want to get that for your children or a friend's kid, in my case, do that. It's going to be really cute. And I just looked this up. A Child's First Book of Trump Ugh. is a parody book. Oh, good. What do you do when you spot a wild Trump in the election season? <laughs> it's kind of like where the wild things are. It kind of looks like that. His hair is, is ridiculous. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Okay. Well, Mark, Mark Rosenthal, you're okay at my book now. He's okay. He's good. And very exciting that they're continuing to repurpose and repackage the Beatles for a new generation. Yeah. 50 years on, it does not go away and it does not die down. No. Yeah. It's amazing. This is going to be what the third, fourth generation, you know, coming up now. God, yeah. It just, it never stops, folks. It's never stopping. This book is really funny, this Trump book. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, we learned about two new books today. Yes, yay. Okay, so the exciting thing that's happening right now is that Yellow Submarine, the 50th anniversary remaster in 4K, is out in theaters. I just saw it for the first time ever. I cannot um, wait to hear all about that, how that was for you. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's also streaming on Amazon Prime, which is probably the way most people will see it right now because theaters have been packed and a madhouse. Nobody had any idea that it was going to be this popular. So they're going to roll out more screenings in August because it was so successful. And because grosses for the film were higher in many of these cinemas than for any of the films in the Hollywood studios that were playing in the complex at the same time. Yellow Submarine obviously looms large in the Beatles legend. Its history is very strange and complicated, as you can imagine. If you consider, you know, it's a Beatles film, but the Beatles are only in it for, what, like 30 seconds? Um, So we're going to take you through the history of Yellow Submarine, how it came to be, why it came to be, and some of the shady characters who were involved. And there was one in particular who was kind of a, excuse me, kind of a fuckface, allegedly. (laughs) Uh, So the history of Yellow Submarine can really be traced back to the early 60s when Brian Epstein, and okay, I'm going to preface this. By saying, if you're going to, like, add us or email us or anything with us saying Brian made a bunch of shitty deals, save it. I don't want to hear it. We'll talk about that on a future episode. Um, Brian is her boyfriend. Brian is the love of my life. And we'll have to address that at some point. But he's my favorite Beatle. And I will fight you. Anyway. What's your cat's name? My cat's name is Epi. And actually, he's right beside me right now. Sure is. Washing his face. So, and you'll probably hear him purring. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So, Brian... Back in, I think, 63, 64, signed a deal with a company called United Artists. And this deal was for three motion pictures starring the Beatles. Obviously, the first two are Hard Day's Night and Help. So 1967 rolls around. Early 1967, summer 67. The Beatles obviously released Sgt. Pepper, you know, in June. Um, and United Artists around this time was like, where's our third movie, guys? Like, we need this movie. Um, it had been two years since help. They were kind of like, you need to fulfill your contract. The Beatles were like, no, we don't want to. They hung up touring in 66. They had just completed this album. They weren't looking forward to being in a movie. They sort of just wanted to peace out to hang out with the Maharishi and do all the stuff they do later in the year and sort of move on. So they went to Brian and said, we don't want to do this movie. What can you do? Brian went back to United Artists and he said, look, guys, what can we do that will involve the boys as little as possible, but still fulfill this contract? He solicited the help of this producer named Al Brodax. Spoiler, he's the fuckface. Um, and okay. he, Brian asked Al for ideas for a film. So Al Brodax went back to his team and they came up with some specs, some ideas, some like script ideas. And he flew to London to present them to Brian. Now he packaged each script or spec in these multicolored envelopes and one was red one was blue one was green etc and according to brodax and i would just take everything this guy says with a grain of salt according to him he gave these specs to brian and brian starts like tossing them aside he's like i don't like green i don't like purple just going on the color alone and brodax was pretty pissed i don't know 
So the next thing that Brodex has happened, and this is why I hate him, he dove across the desk and grabbed Brian. Um, and Brian yelled, and Brian's lawyer had to come in and break it up. And anybody who lays a finger, a finger on Brian. That's fucking crazy. Dead to me. Yes. No. And, you know, just to back that up, John Lennon would later call Al Brodax a monster. So, yeah, all this is hearsay. Al Brodax himself said he did that to Brian, though. So that's, you know, don't sue us. Um, I'm not even sure if Al Brodax is still alive. Anyway, but... Nope, I just found out. He's dead. Okay, great. So one of the scripts that Brian tossed aside was like a treatment by Joseph Heller, who wrote Catch-22. Um, you oh know, God. yeah. So there's some pretty prominent people involved in the beginning. Uh, but the script had to be approved by Brian. So Al Brodex came on as not only producer, but ha- he had a screenwriting credit as well. Um, and he also brought on board Eric Siegel, who wrote Love Story, which later obviously became a huge movie in the 70s. And they together with a couple of other writers, uh, wrote a screenplay, a script, uh, based on a story by a guy called Lee Minoff. And Lee Minoff was, at the time, a 29-year-old playwright. He worked with Kubrick on Dr. Strangelove, and later, much later, like decades later, became a psychotherapist. So there's that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, But Yellow Submarine turned out very, very different from his concept, to be fair. Um, he did come up with a couple of central characters. One of them was Jeremy Hillary Boob. Which mm. it was rumored that uh, Jeremy was a jab at a director called Jonathan Miller, who directed one of Minoff's plays on Broadway, and he was just pissed. Oh, I love this inside theater baseball. I know. Yeah, you're you're a theater person. It's uh, yeah. this is very this has deep roots in theater. Minoff also came up with Old Fred, and he was the one who suggested combining animation with photo- photographs to create that signature look that became so like iconic in Yellow Submarines. You know segments like Eleanor Rigby and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So Brodax and Siegel, the two writers, two other writers or more, um, approached the, who would become the director of Yellow Submarine, George Dunning and, and his associate John Coates. And together Dunning and Coates had a company called TV Cartoons in London and they actually made half of the Beatles cartoon series. So it sort of made sense to go to them. Um, they didn't like Brodex. They thought he was sketchy as hell, because he was. Um, they didn't really want to get involved, because they didn't trust them, and they were sort of moved on from the Beatles series. They didn't want to remake that same concept. It was a little elementary for them. They wanted to do something more elaborate and experimental. And they basically turned it down until George Martin called them and said, hey, we're gonna have a Sgt. Pepper listening party come over and listen to this before it comes out. And when Denning and Coates heard the album, they realized the Beatles themselves moved on to more experimental territory. And they were like, yes, let's do this. This this music needs a film. So they came on board. However, the Beatles were still not sold on this idea of an animated feature with them. But they eventually came around because you know, it would involve way less interaction, obviously. They wouldn't even be doing any live action shooting other than the cameo. Um, but they but their main misgiving came because they really hated the cartoon series. And Same. Same. <laughs> same. Yeah. yeah. Here's the thing though. The cartoon series, like you like and they went they were so much they went to Brian and they were like, You have to bar this in the UK. We can't have like our friends and family seeing this shit. And so Brian did. <laughs> um but Consider this, okay? So, again, if you're gonna, like, talk about Brian's shitty deals, go away. You might say this is another, like, kind of questionable deal or something, you know, that he signed up for. However, consider that it broke ratings records on ABC. So, objectively, it was successful. I'm just gonna say that. I'm sure kids loved it in the 60s. Yeah. Young, young kids. You know, very young kids. It just seemed like it didn't do the Beatles quite justice artistically. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I'm not even sure really what purpose it served. Like, it's not one of those things, you know, that holds up in, like, the Beatles legend. It's not like, I discovered the Beatles through the cartoon, you know? But, yep. oh well. Um, so, but the good news is for Yellow Submarine is the Beatles ended up loving it. Um, John Lennon even would later say that the creators of Yellow Submarine lifted the ideas out of the Beatles' heads and didn't give them any credit. I don't know, <laughs> you know, that's something that... <laughs> 
John Lennon can just have, I guess. So anyway, they came around. Obviously, they didn't have much involvement, but they did have to do two things. They had two commitments. One was they had to be in the movie, hence the Beatles cameo at the end. Uh, they filmed it in January of 68, just before they left uh, India, um, in order to fill that contractual obligation. However, United Artists later came back and said, you know what? That didn't fulfill it. So hence, we have Let It Be. Did they say why? Later. I think it was just too short. There wasn't that much Beatles, mm. you know, in it. And I I mean, yeah. you could argue it two ways. The whole thing's about the Beatles or they were only in it for 30 seconds. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. So the second thing they had to do was record four new songs. So most of the soundtrack is derived from Sgt. Pepper, Revolver, uh, Rubber Soul, and I think that's it. Um and but the four new tracks were only a northern song which george uh wrote and recorded during the sergeant pepper sessions all together now which sounds like it was written in 30 seconds uh mm-hmm. it's all too much and hey bulldog uh also baby you're a rich man is in there um it was the b-side to all you need is love obviously also in there um so getting into production so production launched just after the release of sergeant pepper in the summer of 67 it took between 11 and 15 months, depending on who you believe. Uh, initially, when literally produ- production started, there was no storyboard, no script. Um, and in the end, they had to bus in art college students uh, to complete animation. And Oh, my God. Yeah, in total, over 200 people all worked on the animation side. Also, the voiceovers and, the, and that kind of thing had to be recorded twice. Um, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what happened. But... It might have something to do with the fact that eight months in, there was a huge dispute between Al Brodax, chief dickhead, and uh, TV cartoons, that would be uh, Dunning and Coates, and that almost caused the whole thing to collapse. I don't even know what the dispute was about. They just got into it. Sounds like it's not hard to have a fight with Al Brodax. This guy sucks. Yeah, right? Everybody involved in production refused to just work for Brodax, so he had to, like, step down and you know, make sure that the production could go on. However, it is said that um, the Chief Flumini was modeled after Al Brodax uh, because <laughs> so many people fucking hated this guy. And then Max, who's the Chief Flumini's assistant, or lackey, really, he represented Abe Goodman, who is Brodax's assistant, and uh, was sent to London to keep an eye on production and sort of hover over everybody's shoulders. Um, oh my god, that's fucked up. I know, I know. And just a, another note on Al Brodax, if you want to read, and I think it did actually come out, but uh, he wrote a book called Up Periscope Yellow, The Making of the Beatles Yellow Submarine. I don't know, I'm not going to read it, but one of the main points that people always say first about Yellow Submarine is, but the Beatles didn't do their own voices. I'm here to admit, Yellow Submarine like happened to me, I'm just going to say it that way. Um, very early in my Beatles fandom. It was probably after Help, the second Beatles movie I ever saw, and I didn't realize that. I Shit, when I first saw it, I didn't realize that Paul sang Eleanor Rigby. That's how early it was. Also, I was like 12, 13. So I'm going to just totally, you know, out myself there, but I couldn't tell. Now I can. Now it's blatantly obvious. The Ringo was very good. So was the John, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. And you'll find out why in like 10 seconds. Um... <laughs> So yeah, but but for Brodax and whatever, you know, he, again, worked on the Beatles cartoon series, George Jenning did, but he was pretty happy the Beatles didn't do their own voices because he didn't really want to deal with quote unquote celebrities. Um, one thing he did tell them was to try to quote unquote Americanize their accents because he couldn't, he couldn't see people in Buffalo understanding the Beatles' Liverpudlian accents. Oh, yuck. I know. I think that's stupid, but whatever. Um, That's the same mentality that makes us have two different titles for the first Harry Potter book, Sorcerer's Stone versus Philosopher's Stone, because they didn't think Americans would understand the concept of the Philosopher's Stone. That's ridiculous. We do. We get it. Exactly. And if you like the Beatles, if you like Harry Potter, there's a good chance you're like an Anglophile anyway. So just saying. Mm Mm-hmm. Just saying. Well, good thing for us, the four voice actors who did the Beatles voices were like, no, we're not going to do that. Because a lot of them were from Liverpool. So let's go through the voice actors here. So uh, number one is John Clive. He played John Lennon. Um, he was actually part of the Mersey Beat scene in the early 60s. He used to MC concerts um, in the era of the Silver Beatles. So when they were coming. Oh, wow. Out, yeah. 
And uh, funny thing, uh, John Lennon thought that all the voices were good, except for his, of course. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> of course. Well, that's why we have so many new vocal effects in our musical repertoire, because he hated his voice so much, he wanted to change it all the time. Exactly. It's like, um, have some objectivity, John. It sounds great. If he didn't think it was good, it probably was good, because it meant it sounded like John, which he hated listening to. Jeff Hughes voiced Paul McCartney, and Jeff was also from Liverpool. He saw the Beatles play at the Cavern. Peter Batten voiced George Harrison. We're going to come back to good old Pete in a second, because there's some major drams <laughs> with him. Um, but Paul Anglis voiced Ringo Starr and the Chief Blue Meanie. Meanie, he's also the narrator, also from Liverpool. He was a friend of this guy called Roger McGuff, who was in The Scaffold with Mike McGear slash McCartney. Oh, cool. Yeah. So McGuff, he was this poet, um, and he was actually brought on to do some writing for the film, and I'm pretty sure we have him to thank for the actual, like, Beatley banter and puns and, like, the dialogue that actually makes them sound like the Beatles. I think that's all chalked up to Roger McGuff. So thank you, Roger McGuff. Going back to Peter Batten, he got the part of George after he was overheard by George Dunning um, talking in a Liverpudlian accent in a London pub. So halfway through recording, he was allegedly hooking up with one of the production women um, when the cops burst in and arrested him be- what? because he was a deserter of the British Army of the Rhine in Germany. Oh, my God. What? Yeah. That's so weird. Yeah. He was he was arrested. He was carted off. Um, and, the, and the crazy part is, like, he pretty much disappeared. Like, nobody knows where he is. He's not around like yeah he's banished so after he left his part was taken over by paul angelus who if you remember voice ringo and i actually i didn't know this before i started researching this and i haven't really noticed i guess because i wasn't looking for it so i really want to go back and rewatch yellow submarine to see if i can hear the difference so he took over they, they he took over and they didn't re-record george no it's half george is one voice and the other half is a different person yeah it's half and half Oh my god, that's fucked up. They were so busy or they cared so little they didn't even want to have one voice. I know. It's like they, I mean, maybe that's, I don't know, if they actually did record it twice, you would think they would just re-record it with one George, but I don't know. I mean, George, to be fair, didn't really talk that much in Yellow Submarine, but who knows? We also had two other voice actors, Lance Percival, he voiced Old Fred. Um, He also played both Paul and Ringo in the Beatles cartoon. Um, and Dick Emery voiced uh, Jeremy, the mayor of Pepperland, and Max. So the film itself, if you haven't seen it, there's this ethereal, beautiful um, musical land called Pepperland. And there's a group of like villains called the Blue Meanies, and they hate music. So they attack Pepperland, basically obliterate all the music. They have crazy like henchmen called Apple Bonkers, which drop apples on top of people's heads and freeze them (laughs) they have snapping turks which was kind of racist um they have uh flying gloves and bulldogs and all this kind of stuff so they attack pepperland um one guy called old fred managed to escape in the yellow submarine which by the way i want a backstory about the yellow submarine coming to pepperland because it's on this like shrine thing when fred gets in and it's like yeah it's weird and uh lord mayor says something like oh this is what brought our people here it's like i want to know more about that because it sounds like aliens anyway so fred flies away in the yellow submarine somehow lands in liverpool recruits the beatles to come and help save pepperland um along the way they travel through a bunch of seas including the sea of holes the sea of green the sea of nothing the sea of monsters and so on and they meet a bunch of different um you know creatures one of them is jeremy hillary boo phd bud as ringo says and just have these adventures and they they create these sort of segments wrapped around Beatles songs finally they arrive in pepperland and really the gist of it is they fight the blue manies they win um and the good guys win and uh all is well at the end of the day they even invite the blue manies to join in the fun at the end so it's got a good good spirit and good ending um reminded me a little of footloose in a strange way really because that was all about like the mayor of footloose oh right like the mayor of the town he banned music and so it was about like the young people getting together to you know bring joy and music back to the city i could see that after you say that that makes sense i wonder uh wonder if there's any inspiration there it's possible possible 
Um, if you've seen the restored version on the theater screen, it's beautiful. It's so pristine. And I actually forgot. I, I was like, oh, yeah, it's Peter Max, right? Nah, it looks like Peter Max, but the art director on the film is a guy called Heinz Edelman. And he was a Czech-German uh, graphic designer who was actually one of the pioneers of the psychedelic art movement that Max would later make famous. It was like, oh, wow. yeah, it was like Edelman and like Milton Glaser. Um, they sort of created that. And uh, But Peter Max, however, would later say, again, hearsay, that John Lennon had asked him to work on the film. I don't know. Uh, Is there any evidence that Peter Max had any hand in it? No, there's no evidence. Uh, I, I, it's just so close, you know. It just it looks so Peter yeah. Max, but I don't think so. Unless there's just sort of like an ins- inspiration element. Um, but the film also pioneered a form of uh, animation called limited animation, um, and it paved the way for things like the opening sequence of Monty Python's Flying Circus into Sesame Street. It really, they can trace that back to um, Yellow Submarine, weirdly. Oh, yeah, I remember those those animated sequences yeah. in Sesame Street, yeah. Yeah, so it really kind of came to the forefront right here. Right here in this little Beatles film. So the Beatles look in the film and the animations were based off of their promo video for Strawberry Fields Forever. And we'll talk about the looks in a second because it's a really interesting sort of component to this. And one other footnote that proves that Albert X was totally out of touch. The Hey Bulldog sequence was actually cut from the American version because they thought that Americans would, quote unquote, grow tired from the length of the film if the song was kept Oh my in. God. I know. Oh my God. I know. Again, we know what a Philosopher's Stone is and <laughs> Hey Bulldog was one of the best sequences in the film. So screw you. And it's not even that long. It's not even like... No, it's, an hour, it's under an hour and a half. It's like 88 minutes. That's crazy. Like, honestly, I sat through Titanic eight times in the theater. Okay, I admitted it. Like... When I was 11, so I can I can handle an hour and a half of Beatles music. But it's funny because um, for almost 30 years, it was kept out of the American version. But I know when I first saw Yellow Submarine, it was in there. So if you saw Yellow Submarine for the first time after 1999, it, you've never known it without Hey Bulldog, which I don't, I have never known it without Hey Bulldog. I can't even imagine because that's like one of my favorite songs in the whole movie. So the rest of the music... Um, the film was composed by George Martin, of course. Um, and Martin was um, originally approached. He was told that he had to compose these tracks, but he had no script, no nothing to go off of. He was just told it's going to be sort of a more theatrical version of Beatles songs. And I think with that guidance, that, sc- that score is amazing. It's beautiful. Um, and it was later released in what I call on what I call the white cover um, Yellow Submarine soundtrack, which it's just sort of brighter. Later, a song track would be released in the late 90s, which I call the Blue soundtrack. And that one was actually my first Beatles album. But in the score, you can hear elements of like A Day in the Life, and there's snippets of like Good Night, and like all these different songs that would were before or after the film. So let's go to the reception, which it's almost 50 years ago. It's 50 years ago this week. So the night of its premiere, July 17th, 1968, 10,000 people packed around the Savile Theater uh, for its premiere. And the Beatles were in attendance. And what's really nice, another Brian note, Brian owned the Savile Theater. So it's really lovely that, you know, it was it was premiered there. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, so crazily enough, Yellow Submarine was beloved by both fans and critics, actually more than A Hard Day's Night in Help. I'm not sure why. Um, I, I don't get it. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I, I, yeah, it's just, it doesn't make sense to me. It currently has a 96% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. What's funny is like between the time when Sgt. Pepper was released and the film was released and even when the cameo was filmed, the Beatles looks changed radically. So when you see them in the film, they look totally different than they look in the cameo and they look totally different in the film and the cameo than they did the premiere. So it's kind (laughs) of a weird evolution at this premiere where especially John, John looked completely different in all three sort of time sequences. It's very bizarre. And although the film has held up and it was released for the first time on VHS in 1999, we did have Robert Semenkis who also was behind I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is an awesome film. Um, but he did try to remake Yellow Submarine and computerize 3D in 2009. But thankfully, yeah. nope, didn't happen. And now we have our beautiful yellow submarine that we all know and love and uh, with its crazy backstory. And so that's a brief history of yellow submarine.
screen in the movie. That is a crazy backstory considering the Beatles are barely even in it. I know. Yeah, lots of politics. Lots of uh, lots of crazy characters. Al Brodax, what a dick. Yeah, that guy sucked. The, the Beatles weren't even the only people who said that. It was like everybody who came in contact with, with him was like, he's so sketchy. It reminded me a lot of what people say about like Alan Klein. Like that kind of thing. So I want to know, dying to know, because Erica and I have purposely not texted, we haven't talked at all about seeing Yellow Submarine in the theater um, because it was her first time and I really want to hear it for the first time on the podcast. So Erica, tell me everything about seeing Yellow Submarine. Okay, so I went in as blind as I was before this was coming out. I'd read no reviews. I didn't look at YouTube clips. I didn't listen to the soundtrack. Nothing. I wanted to be as virgin as possible. So I saw it um, downtown. I, After three nights of trying, I finally found a place that I could get seats because it was super, super packed. Um, and it was crazy. <laughs> um, I'm still not entirely sure what to say about it. Um, starting off, I mean, it was visually, it was beautiful. It was so bright. It was so colorful that animation is, it just pops mm -hmm. and it's, it's positive and it's cheerful and it's fun. And then all I could think as it went on though, was that this movie is brought to us by all the drugs, <laughs> every drug. Brought to you by it all was, the drugs. All the drugs. It was so, <laughs> it was so druggy. <laughs> <laughs> like I I wasn't personally high but I felt high watching it. It was it was trippy. It was weird. You know, there were a lot of what the fuck moments because, you know, all of a sudden he'd be in the sea of holes and like, oh, okay. That's that's interesting. Um but I I really enjoyed it. I think that like Hard Days Night and to a lesser extent help it it brought the Beatles personas across very well as they have been portrayed in the media. Mm -hmm. um, like, especially Ringo, it almost started like that scene in A Hard Day's Night where he's walking on the, the docks and he's kicking the rocks around. It seemed like he was very depressed. It was, I think it was after Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. It went right into him. And, oh, and Eleanor Rigby, that was really gorgeous. That wasn't in the same style. But it reminded me a lot of Free as a Bird. Well, it's funny because, um, you know, the shot, the opening shot in Liverpool, when they focus on the Liber Tower, or gosh, I can't remember. I think it's the Royal Liber Building um, right on the bank of the Mersey River there. Um, and they mm -hmm. sort of do a weird, like, 3D pan where it starts there and then it shifts, like, downward. So it becomes, like, eye level, like, the perspective. Um, mm -hmm. And if you, I'm not sure if you remember, but like, it's so iconic. It was, I remember one of the first scenes that stuck out to me as a kid. I was like, damn, how'd they do that? Um, actually, they don't know how they did that. <laughs> they don't. Really? They did it and then they don't know how they did it. So, because it seems very before its time. It seems very yeah. technological. So that, yeah, I love, I love that shot. I love the Liverpool parts, like just the grayness and the, oh, I just love it. Yeah. And then going into that bright yellow submarine world, mm -hmm. it was, it was really shocking and a little bit dis unsettling for a minute, but it was, a, it was a really fun contrast. It was like the Wizard of Oz. Very much like that. Another thing I noticed was that they did a great job getting the Beatles' personal stances and ways of moving really well in the cartoon. George was George. That was it. Like, you could not mistake him for another Beatle from the back. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Considering they, they could have rushed off anything. They didn't have to do that. But they really studied what they looked like. Yeah, definitely. And they, you know, they got it so right for that period of time, too. And it it's funny because even today we sort of stereotype George as like the mystical Beatle. But even in the film, it's like he's saying these like one-off isms, like it's all in the mind, you know? That's his fucking catchphrase, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which is so they funny. They really got him. They did. They got George. And all of them. I thought the George voice was pretty good, even though now I know it's two dudes. I know. I need to go back. I really want to go back and watch it. I might do that this weekend. What I didn't know was how many old songs were in that, old being in, on previous albums, mm -hmm. which I thought was probably really nice for people watching the movie. And maybe that was why it was so well received in that it's not all new and you know, trippy and psychedelic, it's also familiar. Exactly. Especially, like, since some of them were taken from Sgt. Pepper, too, which I'm sure so many people had and so many people loved and had listened to a million times by then. I like the incorporation of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band as an actual band mm -hmm. in an actual town. 
And the Beatles had a connection. They looked just like them. That is very cool. The glove was very funny. Yeah. Because it was all just a setup so that they could do all you need is love and take the G off. Yeah, definitely engineered. Cable dog, wonderful. It was probably my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. I have a bulldog, so that might be part of it. But, you know, a forehead bulldog. I love bulldogs. Hi, Rusty. Um, (laughs) I love our pets. Shout out to Rosie, too, my other dog. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't know. It was just fun. It was fun. I felt a little a little dizzy after getting out of there. Um, it was wonderful to actually see the real Beatles at the end. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of animated things, really. So, you know, I was so happy to see them. And I, I read somewhere after that, they're on a black background. They meant to make it look all psychedelic and trippy, I think, kind of like Pepperland, but they ran out of time. And they ran out of money, too. <laughs> so they just <laughs> left it like that. Yeah. Like, the part with the actual Beatles was the least treated part at all. Yeah. They all have totally, like, janky, quote-unquote, props from the movie. Like, George has this, like, busted thing he calls the motor, which looks like something you'd make with, like, a Kinect set. And <laughs> yeah. uh, Ringo's got, a like, a hole... Did you know there was going to be a cameo at the end? No! You didn't? I was so happy. I was so excited. I had no idea. That's so funny. I love it. So, wait. So, Hey Bulldog, was that your favorite song sequence in the movie? It's one of my favorite songs in the movie. I think When I'm 64 was my favorite sequence. Mm -hmm. Because they were doing all this really trippy time moving forwards and backwards stuff. Yeah. While doing this music hall song. So, it was kind of a juxtaposition in styles and very weird. Mm -hmm. That weirdness was great. Jeremy Hillary Boob was an interesting man. Yeah. I was trying to tell my roommate like what he is and I have no clue. I just called him like an animal. I'm like, it was an animal. <laughs> I mean, some kind of creature. I Sorry, don't know. Jeremy, he doesn't... I don't know what you are. He's a nowhere man. He is. I feel bad for him though. I always feel sad for Jeremy, especially at the end of Nowhere Man when he's like sitting there crying. I'm like, I understand. Like, <laughs> yeah and then Ringo is so sweet he's like I'm gonna take the nowhere man somewhere oh yeah I know it's <laughs> what's funny too when you talked about Ringo earlier it's like if you consider both Hard Day's Night and Help Ringo is kind of the main character in a lot of ways and I think mm-hmm. uh, in Yellow Submarine he also steals the show he was the best actor yeah well he also you know Paul Anglis uh, he also had to take on George so Superstar of Yellow Submarine Award goes to Paul Anglis who filled in for that deserter Peter Batten. MVP. <laughs> MVP of Yellow Submarine. So yeah, I mean, I, don't, I certainly don't have anything too profound to say. It was very strange and very short and definitely will be remembered, I think, more for its visuals than for the depth of its story. Yeah. I am happy to have seen it. I'm glad I didn't see it as a kid, though, because I wouldn't have liked it and I wouldn't have appreciated it. Really? Yeah, I, I see why I never saw it. I can tell that this is something that my dad would have hated. And dad, if you're listening, and I know you are, send me a comment. Let me know if I'm right. (laughs) That you would have hated Yellow Submarine. And I don't remember it ever being, you know, a VHS tape in the house or anything like that. And so it was just kind of skipped over. And I'm glad because I share a lot of similar music tastes with my dad. And I think I would have felt exactly the same way. (laughs) It's funny. I was asked also, it's like, is this a kid's movie? I don't know. I think it's for everybody. Um, I guess it is based on your taste. I was trying to think if I hadn't seen it so early on when I was still very, very young and I knew the Beatles weren't really in it and all that. I, I don't know what I would have thought, but you know, as I said before, I was a dumb child and I was like, oh, the Beatles voices. Nah. No, little Allison. No, you're so funny. If you were, too. if you didn't know, or if you were in 1968 and didn't have regular access to hearing the Beatles spoken voices like we do, yeah, I think it's very easy to say that those are the Beatles. Sure. The first time I saw it was probably like 2000 before YouTube. Before I mean, even then, it's like I don't have access to the Beatles recorded voices. I think before YouTube really blew up or you know things like that, it was really hard to. To get that grasp. So, all right, I'm going to defend, defend little me. What was the crowd like when you went to stay in the theater? I saw it at IFC. It was in the village. You know, that's a pretty art house kind of crowd. Um, they don't show popular first run movies there. The theater was packed. I just sit in the very front row because I got there a bit late. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. That's like, yeah, I can see why uh, you had kind of a trippy experience and walked out of there dizzy. That sea of holes you're sitting in the front oh, row. Yeah, oh, yeah, people God. were... And they're upside down and they're like... People were screaming at my... When I would just sit in the theater, they were like, I'm freaking out, man, during that. 
Nobody was that loud in mine, but they did end up singing along in the end and everybody went out pretty happy. Yeah. It was cute. Not the most vocal. So you saw it in a loud house? I did. I saw it in um, a Lamley Theater in North Hollywood. Definitely a lot of Beatlemaniacs. I saw a lot of Beatles t-shirts coming in. People obviously of all ages. People from the very opening sequence or you know credits, they were clapping, they were singing. Um, when George Martin's name came on the screen, they all clapped. Oh, yeah. I'm kind of a curmudgeon. I'm sort of like stop, <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I didn't really. But I did. I mean, even I, who I'm, yeah, a little bit of a party pooper. Um, I was singing along at the end all together now because you have to. You have to. It's just it is really uplifting and and yeah, I agree. I think everybody kind of went out of there pretty happy, but there was a lot of like screaming at the screen and. I think the kids next to me were like quoting along, which is fine because I do that as well. Um, but yeah, it was it was cool. It was great to see it. It's my first time seeing it in the theater. Um, it looked insane. The sound was magnificent. It just it was such a great experience, like all the way around. It was like seeing it for the first time, even though I think it was my first time in seeing it in about fifteen years, and I still remembered every single goddamn word. So seeing it again after all this time. Did your opinion change? Did you have any new favorite parts? Well, I don't think I appreciated it. And I'm an artist. By Trey, I grew up as an artist. Uh, you know, I've sold artwork. But, like, I don't think I got the art when I was young. And I think that's the thing that's really stuck with me this time after seeing it. It's, like, it's just so gorgeous visually. And I love Peter Max. And I love Andy Warhol and the pop art uh, movement. And I just think, yeah, that's kind of what stuck out to me. But... My favorite sequences haven't really changed. I love uh, when I'm 64, I love Lucy in the Sky, and I love um, Only Northern Song. I think that one is really cool uh, with the sort of like neon on black. Oh, with their heads and everything. Yeah, with the heads and the boxes and the, yeah. It made me feel like I was a kid again, which I will take that anytime I can get it. I loved it. I I would go see it again if MoviePass would let me. Anyway. Damn you, MoviePass. Right. Thanks for changing your terms. (sighs) Let's not even go into it. It's too stressful. Yeah. I hope they do roll it out to more theaters in August. I know a lot of people I've seen on Instagram and Twitter talking about it and unable to see it. But um, And I haven't watched it on Prime yet, but that's really cool that it's there. If it's out again, I think I want to see it again. Yeah. I hope I get a louder crowd. I hope I get one that's a little bit more into it. Because that sounds like it was a fun experience. Yeah. You got to go see it in like a less sophisticated theater. Like, I don't know, like an AMC in like Brooklyn. We were trying to get the Alamo, you know, where you oh, get yeah, there we go. And drink and everything. That was sold out in almost as fast as Paul McCartney tickets sold out the other day. Uh, I'm sure it was less of a shit show. I think almost anything is less of a shit show than that. That sounded like hell. Fair enough. All right. So this was a success, it sounds like. Yeah, I would gauge that as a success. Happy 15th anniversary, Yellow Submarine. Right, we're at the end of our show, and let's talk about our favorite Beale-related thing of the week. Allison, what's yours? So mine um, is a little strange. I'm going to plug another podcast. There's this podcast called Disgraceland, which basically talks through some scandalous moments in rock and roll. A lot of them have to do with like murder, um, suicide, that kind of thing. And this past episode cycle, they did a two-part episode on John Lennon's murder. So this is a little bit dark, and normally I wouldn't go this morbid or pick it as a highlight even, but the host, uh, Jake Brennan, does a really good job of humanizing John. And I think, Erica, you and I have talked about this, about how people are sometimes delusional when it comes to John, and they love to, like, deify him and elevate him to, like, St. John Lennon. Mm -hmm. And so he does a really good job of sort of, like, laying it all out, being, like, black and white, this is how John Lennon was, and he doesn't candy coat it. I will say the one thing that I didn't really love is he is very mean to Yoko. He says some really disparaging things, not only about her as John's wife or a muse or like her involvement in the breakup of the Beatles, which is all par for the course. Um, but he definitely goes into like hating on her art and her work as like a feminist and that kind of thing, which I don't really love getting past all that. He does do a really good job of sort of laying out the events of John's last five or so years, um, even just the entire decade of the 70s, going up to when he was sadly murdered. Um, He does go into Mark David Chapman's life and his, you know, his mental state and all that kind of stuff. And not he doesn't apologize. He's not an apologist. He's not excusing it. He's not saying anything. But he does sort of give it context in a way that I think a lot of people just sort of gloss over. And the way he does it is really interesting. 
I think it's worth a listen for sure. If you're a little sensitive about John, so we totally get it. But this is definitely something to keep an eye out for. I'll have to take a listen. I love podcasts. I usually stay away from almost anything that deals with that subject. But if you say that it's done well. It is done well. And I think the way he, Brennan, writes too, it's like I really enjoy the way he puts sentences together and the way he speaks and the way he sort of attacks things. I think it's really creative. He did some other really great episodes. I mean, I'm sort of on the fence about how I feel about his content as far as like how he tells the stories. Like he did an episode of Sam Cooke. I'm a massive Sam Cooke fan. Um, I do think he was a little heavy handed. I don't, he attacked like some controversial subjects as if they were fact, which is not, you should present the whole scenario, not just one side of it. But Mm -hmm. I think in this instance with this episode, this two part episode series, I think it's worth a listen. And uh, if you listen to it, let us know what you think. Very curious. But yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. My favorite Beatle related thing of the week is also John Lennon. A little bit different, though. This company called Molecule 8 has created a limited edition figurine of John Lennon. And it is scary real. It is so detailed. I think I saw a picture of that. Yeah. <gasps> It's got a custom-designed body with an endoskeleton inside to shape it correctly. Okay. It's got two heads, one where he's singing, one where he's not. Um, He's got interchangeable hands with all kinds of gestures. His hands have, like, veins in them. Like, it's that detailed. There's a guitar with it with tiny, tiny little guitar picks that he can hold. Oh, my gosh. Guitar picks? I'm kind of obsessed with this thing. It's $300. There's only 1,000 of them made. Um, If you want to see more about it, I would suggest heading over to our friend Christine Summers' YouTube page. She's a massive Beatlemaniac, and she does an unboxing video. It's very cool. I'll have to go watch that, because I definitely want to see these two heads. Oh, it's so weird. (laughs) I can't stop stop staring at him. That's so funny. I think, yeah, I saw a picture of it. Just the one head, though. (laughs) You got to see the other head. I got to see the other head. Yeah, for sure. That reminds me of, like, in the early 2000s, I think. I forget what company it was, but they made, like a Jim Morrison action figure like that. And it was like shirtless Jim Morrison. So I like <laughs> loved it, obviously. Of course, yeah. Jim Morrison. Um, but yeah, it was hyper realistic like that. But it doesn't sound like he didn't have like pics or anything. That's pretty, that's pretty intricate. It's nuts. If I had extra 300 sitting around, I would definitely pick this one up. That's for sure going to be a hot collector's item, I think, because it's so hyper specific and awesome. It really looks like one of those things, though. You put it in your house and no matter where you go, it's staring at you. Oh, yeah, that's a little creepy. It's too real. It's very real. Too yeah. real. It's too it's, real. It's freaking me out. Maybe because I just saw Yellow Submarine recently and I'm still a little bit, ooh. Your mental state is questionable, Erica. It's okay. We've all been there. Oh, that's that's just a given. <laughs> all right well on that note thank you for listening to because the beatles and don't forget to follow us all our handles bc the beatles facebook instagram twitter and give us a subscribe if you like what you're listening to and uh, give us a little rating and review if you like what you're hearing it'll help other beetle maniacs find us and if you have anything you want us to cover feel free to hit us up our email address is because the beatles bc the beatles at gmail.com we're here all the time and we love to talk about the beatles all the time all the time 24 8 get it get it i like it mm, all right we have a new slogan I we do 24 8 perfect oh i really like that actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay starting next week new slogan <laughs> all right well uh yes and stay tuned for the next installment of because the beatles bye bye